2: You are listening to Failed State Update. I am your co-host, Joseph L. Flatley. I believe this episode is also being published by Parallax Views, the other more popular, longer podcast by uh, Failed State Update co-host, J.G. Michael. Failed State Update is the website that asks the question, is America in terminal decline or does it just feel like it is? To see more of our our reported news and feature commentary, please check us out at failedstateupdate.com. And to hear more of the Failed State Update podcast, just do a search on your podcast app of choice.
3: I don't give a fuck about you and all that bullshit you're stressing. Fuck a war. So explain, let me kick it to you a little something like this. Motherfucker war, that's how I feel. Sending a nigga to death to get killed. But
2: two suckers can agree on something for Fuck war Fuck imperialism I don't know how else to put it I don't know that there's much more to be said The fact is um, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine has Thrown a lot of people for a loop I don't care who you are War is neither predictable or logical And A broken clock is correct twice a day and all these other ridiculous idioms that kind of fall flat when an event of this magnitude occurs. And I'm afraid that this is just kind of a sign of the times, sign of things to come. Now we put this episode together in a hurry, hence me using the, the cheap microphone. Eric Dreitzer is an independent political analyst and the host of Counterpunch Radio. He was able to uh, share a lot with JG about Ukraine, about what it means to people who are anti-war and anti-imperialism, and kind of how we got there in the first place. Yeah. Short conversation, but an important one, which provides a much-needed clarity to a set of circumstances that is not at all clear.
3: Uh,
1: I'd say, how are you doing today? But this is a very depressing and just I i, I feel a heaviness uh, speaking today right after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, but w- what are your I- initial thoughts? It's frightening. It's
0: terrifying. It's terrible. It's a historic turning point, a historic blunder, a historic, a-, a watershed. It's um, it's an inflection point in the history of global imperialism. It is a lot of different things all at once. And uh, so, you know, I have a lot of conflicting views, but I mean, I guess the primary, the primary thing I'm feeling is a, is a tremendous sense of discouragement at how much disinformation is being peddled around the conflict and how little people seem to understand how little people seem to have learned over the last six, seven, eight years. And, uh, just generally a lack of understanding, a lo- uh, you know, especially on the left, which is, you know, where I, the space that I politically inhabit. And so, um, I guess I'm feeling a lot of different emotions really.
1: I just want to say to start out, I think if there's anyone left that is not unequivocally condemning the move Putin has made here, I think they're really in the wrong. I mean, I, I've spoken already to uh, a lot of colleagues of the late uh, Stephen Cohen, who I, I know you've been uh, critical of, but all of his colleagues are saying we have to condemn this. Uh, people like Anatole Levin, people like um, his wife, uh, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, and It seems like right now everyone should be taking the stance of, no, this needs to be condemned. And I just want to say that straight out into this conversation. If you're not condemning this invasion, you're just in the wrong. And I don't think you have a right to call yourselves anti-war you don't have a right to call yourself anti-war
0: you certainly don't have a right to call yourself an anti-imperialist this is imperialist aggression this is russian imperialist aggression and you know for whatever people want to say about wow russia is not imperialist china's not imperialist yes i've been arg- i've been arguing that point for years as well but things change times change and understandings of the world have to change russian imperialism is not some manufactured concept this existed for 300 plus years longer really if your if your heritage comes from this uh, central asia from the Caucasus, from areas around the Black Sea. Russian imperialism has been with uh, your ancestors for at least four centuries, if not longer. So uh, Russian imperialism is a very real thing. Now, historically, in in our time, we haven't really used terms like Russian imperialism a lot because we have, and I've I've gone into this in my own uh, commentaries, uh, especially if you're of my age group, roughly around 40, you know, 30s and 40s, um, you know, most of your political life is rooted in the last 25 years where my political life really begins with uh, opposition to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, 2002, 2003. I mean, 9-11 to a to some extent, but really the following year with the invasion of Iraq and my understanding of imperialism, global imperialism, how it works, what it is, how do we identify it? all. All of that was rooted in the understandings the knowledge that i sort of gained from that period in understanding that that imperialism is not simply a thing it is a system and that there was an imperial system at play a capitalist imperialist system one that was global one that was uh, uh, uh the singular system on the planet within which many countries, some of which were not always aligned with that system, had to operate. Russia, China, all of these countries operated within this single global capitalist imperialist system that was dominated by the United States and its various proxies and allies and so forth, that this had been the dominant paradigm, the paradigm that I understood from which I took a lot of the political understandings and it is hard for some people to come to terms with the fact that that is simply not the case anymore, that what we now have, and I think Ukraine is ultimately going to be that watershed moment, that inflection point that I was mentioning earlier, that's going to illustrate for a lot of people that the reality of the global imperial chessboard is that it is in flux. It is in flux To a large extent, there is a lot up for grabs. Things are moving. It's not just the Russians and the Chinese and the Turks and others who are making moves around the world that really should, if you're a reasonable uh, uh, thinking person, should really undermine the understanding that we've had to this point that everything in the world that happens is as a result of, of the single imperial system that is not the case anymore i think trump is another example of that uh uh an injection of domestic conflict and political volatility and instability that has led us further down the road to this sort of diffuse kind of nature of imperial power that we're seeing now and uh russia this is this is straight out revanchism. I mean, this is imperial revanchism. It is the reconstituting of Russian
1: imperial understanding of that part of the world. Yeah, I, I saw someone said today they, they were referencing uh, H. W. Bush's uh, New World Order speech, and they said uh, New World Order nineteen, you know, ninety whatever uh, to twenty twenty two, and you know, in, in a way that uh, sort of rings true. I, I think we're in a whole different world. Than we were in the 90s. Uh, I think it's a whole different world than the one where you had people like a Francis Fukuyama running around saying it was uh, the end of history. Uh, I I think we're in a very different moment. Uh, You know, a lot of people have talked about whether we're moving towards a a unipolar world into a a multipolar world. Um, And it, it feels like we're in a very different world at the very least.
0: Multipolar is a term that the Russian propaganda machine throws around all all the time. They use it to no end. It is a mostly meaningless term. It doesn't actually have any real political um, resonance. It certainly doesn't uh, illustrate any actually existing material reality. It is, if anything, a sort of philosophical construct that the Kremlin uses as you know a way of describing. What amounts to opposition to U.S. imperialism? They just don't use the Soviet terminology of imperialism, right, as as as, you know, the Soviets used for for decades. Um, But the the reality is there is no such thing as multipolarity. There is no such thing as a multipolar world. What we're
1: actually. I've been guilty of 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 of. Using the term myself, as have I,
0: as, as have I. I mean, I was I was absolutely in 2012 championing the idea that BRICS uh, and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and these various other multilateral institutions that did not include the United States, that they were going to somehow represent a transformation into a, quote unquote, multipolar world. But what we actually find in the real world is that all of those alliances are utterly meaningless. That all of these countries, I mean, South Africa is a complete joke. It has no business being in any kind of an acronym, economically speaking, that it was a matter of political convenience, right? To use this terminology from both sides, right? So anyway, I don't want to go too far afield on the bricks and stuff. My point is simply to say that the idea of a multipolar world is simply a concoction of the Russians, Right. They use that terminology to define what it is that they do in opposition to U.S. imperialism. The truth is that, quote unquote, multipolarity doesn't account for Russian mercenaries running around Africa being in two dozen countries. It doesn't account for what the Chinese are what, what the Chinese are doing in various parts of the world. The horrible things that are happening uh, from the Turkish uh, uh, actions in East Africa or Chinese investments in sub-Saharan Africa and all of these things over overlap, right? And they happen simultaneously in different parts of the world. And sometimes they're connected and sometimes they're not. But the point is that if you're not able to account for all of the conflicting factors that are actually happening globally and that are actually playing into what you might call global imperialism, then you're not an anti-imperialist. You're just a cheerleader for Putin or for Xi Jinping or for Erdogan or whatever your preferred, you know, camp would be. And I mean, this kind of cheerleading, or campism or whatever, you know, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, uh, intra leftist infighting over this issue that I'm not particularly interested in. And I'm certainly not interested in, you know, debating Stalin and Trotsky or debating how you should view the world as a proper communist or any of this other. None of this really matters. What we really should be thinking about is what is actually happening in the real world and who are the people who are telling the truth about it. And what I try to do is tell the truth as much as possible in every um, aspect of of what is happening. And I mean, coming back to Ukraine, the truth of what is happening is that Russia is committing a war crime, a blatant war crime, a crime against the general peace. It is the fundamental War crime, just as the United States committed that same fundamental war crime in Iraq, just as the United States has done it in countless other examples, Russia is guilty of doing exactly the same thing. And the Russians themselves would admit it. They would simply say, we're not doing anything that the United States hasn't already done countless times before. And if if nothing else could illustrate sort of what I mean when I talk about you know competing imperialisms, it is this. It is that both the Russians and the Chinese and the Turks, all three of them really are to some extent, mirroring the kinds of imperialist actions that the United States has carried out for the last 35 years. Right. And the U.S. is having to come to terms with the fact that it is not the only power in the world anymore that can carry out these kind of actions. Right now, if you're a Putin worshiper, sycophant bootlicker. Right. You're saying, great. You see, the Russians get to do just like the Americans. It's all you know, it's uh, you know, the comeuppance. Right. But this is, of course, makes you an absolute piece of dog shit. Right. If you think that way, you're a piece of Shit, Because the reality is that it's human beings, it's human beings who are going to be killed. It's a country that's going to be dismembered. And it is a global nuclear armed power that is doing it. And if you're going to take
1: that side, well, you're a piece of shit. So how do you see us as coming to this point? Because it seems like there were voices in Russia that were trying to moderate Putin at one point. It seems like they've been purged. Uh, It also seems as if there's, uh, you know, growing protests now over this invasion within Russia. So it's not it's not like we're talking about the Russian people. Uh, I I think a lot of the Russian people are very opposed uh, to what has happened. So why would Putin do this? It it seems like this could be a huge strategic blunder on his part. I believe it is a huge strategic blunder.
0: Um, There's certainly no going back, Um, but. Why would he do this? Look, there's a whole cottage industry of people who think they want to get inside Putin's head and explain what his rationale is. Putin uh, obviously made a a bunch of calculations and he calculated that this was uh, the reward was worth the risk. Um, now, why do I think, I think number one, um, I think that he miss, I think that he misread U.S. politics. I think that some of this is rooted in Russia's understanding of the domestic conflict that exists right now between, you know, the sort of, poll around the Democrats and the Democratic Party and Clinton, Biden, Obama and all of those scumbags, right, who do see Russia as the primary threat and who want to really uh, uh, confront Russia in some sense versus Trump and the Republican sort of fascist wing of our domestic politics that really sees China as the primary threat. Right. And I think that Putin knows the division here and he believed that he could exploit This domestic political conflict and gain some significant amount for himself in terms of power, prestige, other things, right, at the expense of the United States and potentially also deliver a sort of mortal blow to NATO, right? The idea that Russia would act in this way and there's not a damn thing NATO is going to do about it, right, to sort of send this message globally, but also send a message domestically, right? This is where I think a lot of the left analysis also fails, right? Putin has tremendous domestic political uh, uh, constraints. Uh, I shouldn't say constraints, but pressures, right? One of those, of course, being the economy. People in Russia are not doing well right? The, the the purchasing power of the Russian ruble has declined. The gap between rich and poor is as wide as it has ever been. People are living in poverty in much of Russia. Remember, Russia is not just Moscow and St. Petersburg. There's a vast country out there with many, many, many millions of Russian people who are really not Uh, engaged in these political games that Putin is engaged in. These people want their, um, you know, want to be able to uh, see their money go further, put their kids into college, you know, whatever, just the basic stuff that everybody else is interested in. Right. Russians are not some alien species. They have the same concerns, the same interests, the same desires as anybody else. Right. And so Putin has Um, uh, 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 sort of a domestic politics that he has to respond to. And if you paid attention to Russia last year, there was a massive protest movement around the elections. The elections were widely seen, even in Russia, as having been extremely rigged in favor of United Russia. That's Putin's party. And they still got hammered at the polls. Right. Navalny uh, is is now in prison, but he is the galvanized sort of force and face of the opposition. Even though many in the opposition are not necessarily in love with Navalny, for better or worse, Navalny has galvanized and become the public face of an opposition. The opposition is significant. They have a significant uh, significance in terms of numbers, not in terms of control of streets. Of course, Russia is uh, very much a, a, a sort of um, It's a police state uh, with some civil liberties, but mostly a a vertically organized police state whereby, uh, you know, protests of any kind is can be quite dangerous. It could be dangerous stuff. You could be brought in on trumped up charges like, you know. Many anarchists and other communists who oppose Putin have been. There's a whole scandal going back several years of anarchists who have been uh, uh, arrested by the Putin regime on trumped up charges and thrown in prison indefinitely. Anyway, there's a lot there's a lot going on there. Of course, also domestically, he has figures on his right to the right of Putin, that basically see uh, uh, Russia as not only needing to reassert itself, but as the only force in the world that can do so. Right. The only force in the world that can push back against the United States, against NATO and all of these forces. Right. And what we've actually seen is, in my view, as you're alluding to, and as I've mentioned elsewhere, uh, the fact that Putin had for a long time a sort of contrast, a a set of contrasts that would whisper into his ear. He had the hawks on his right, but he also had moderates. He had people who would talk about the importance of uh, relations with Europe, the, the, the difficulty that Russia would have in shifting over to China and away from Europe and why Putin might reconsider doing something as drastic as this. And a lot of these more moderate voices. And I'm not just I don't just mean liberals. There were some just straight out pragmatists that were saying this military generals that were saying this writing op-eds in Russian papers.
1: I was going to say really briefly, one of those generals uh, was um, Leonid Ivashov. actually, you know, was saying, you know, if Putin does this, it's it's going to be catastrophic. Uh, These are like very respected figures within the Russian military that said this is a bad idea.
0: Absolutely correct. And it was political figures and military figures that came out saying this. And um, so anyway, all of that is to say that I think it illustrates that Putin is basically now surrounded by, yes, men sycophants who will basically tell him what they think he wants to hear and uh, that they've obviously either they've convinced him or he's convinced himself uh, that NATO had to be. Um, you know, confronted in this way at this time, irrespective of the other circumstances. And uh, well, I would agree with Ivashov that this is uh, uh, foolish on a world historical scale.
1: So getting into that, this this NATO issue, because people uh, will likely try to accuse us of being Pro NATO.
0: The point is that, uh, this is, this is, this is horseshit, right? People are, people are measured by what they do, what they stand for, right? You, if you want to peddle, uh, Russia's propaganda, then that's fine. You can do that. But just know that you better be getting paid as a propagandist the way that people who work for RT or Sputnik are. I mean, these are people whose jobs it is to push forward Russia's talking points, but talking points is all they are. Right. If you want to be if you want to be honest and you want to be a real analyst and you want to look at the situation and ask yourself, what's the difference between NATO's position in 2019 and 2022? The answer is almost nothing. Very little changed between those two times. What did change? U.S. politics changed in that time. A president came to power that in some ways gave the Russians hope that he might undermine NATO that he might undermine the U.S. role in NATO. Russia began to feel that maybe with Trump in power, they could use different different means to accomplish ultimately the same thing, which was driving a wedge between the United States and Europe, driving a wedge between NATO partners and creating space for Russia to be able to reassert itself as it is doing here. Right. But what's happened, of course, is that that didn't work out exactly. Trump lost in 2020. Biden comes to power, pushes forward with all the pretty fairly predictable kind of democratic policies. Right. And Putin feels squeezed. Right. Because now he's looking at the situation and he's saying, wait a second, Trump might not come back at all. And and if he does, it won't be till 2024. Right. Again, going back to what Putin sees as the as the fundamental divide in U.S. politics. And this is where I think he blundered badly. I think he very, very foolishly understood the conflicts in the United States as being domestic in nature, but global in 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 sort of practice. Right. And I don't think they are at all. I think it's quite the opposite. So in any event. Um, To anybody who says that it is about NATO and NATO expansion, you're about 25 percent correct. You know, it is partially about that. It has partially always been about that going back to the days before Putin. Right. It was always at least partially about that. Right. But what exactly is NATO to Russia in Ukraine and in Eastern Europe? Does Russia feel that NATO represents a direct military threat to Russia? Well, They say they do, but they have nuclear weapons in Kaliningrad. They could obliterate all the Baltic states within an hour. They could destroy Europe relatively easily if they wanted to, right? Russia knows that they have the defensive capability to defend themselves, not necessarily to defend against an invasion by NATO, but to destroy Europe. Right That balance of power during the Cold War remains the case today. It has always been the case. The nuclear deterrent is still there, right? Now, the difference is that eight years ago, Putin was tremendously popular. Today, he is not. Eight years ago, oil was a well-understood commodity at tw- in, in, in 2014, over100 dollars a barrel. It's grown back to $100 a barrel, but to a large extent because of what Russia's doing, driving global commodity futures way up as instability goes up, right? The real change is not NATO. It's Russia. It's Putin. It's the world around the United States' imperial power. That is what has changed. Putin, do you think eight years ago, Putin sends Russia's military into Kazakhstan to quell protests Of course not. Does he do it in 2022? You bet. Why? What's the difference? Well, again, the difference is the world is different today and Putin is different and Russia is different. And if you were to read some of the papers uh, in Russia, uh, some of these skeptical voices also point to this, this disastrous blunder in Kazakhstan in January. Kazakhstan erupts in protests. What does Russia do? sends in its military. What does that mean? That I mean, think about it logically. See, this is what I think some of the left just can't grasp. What does it mean? It means that that Russia has now become the de facto military force protecting the post-Soviet kleptocratic oligarchs in the former Soviet states. They will all look to Russia and call on the CSTO to save them, just like Nazarbayev did or Takayev did, actually, just like we have seen several other times. And we're going to see this again. This is disaster for Russia. It makes Russia into these sort of muscle defending these thugs basically right now similarly in eastern europe you see russia acting in a very bold way and i would argue it is as much to send a message to turkey and to china as it is to send a message to nato and europe and the united states but i suppose that could be fleshed out further
1: there's also this issue i think people are grappling with of uh In this case, the intelligence was right, right? The the intelligence agencies were right. This invasion happened. How should we think about that as leftists? I don't think that there's anything to think about. I think that we
0: fundamentally distrust U.S. intelligence. U.S. intelligence is an arm of the empire. It is one of the fundamental, uh, um, you know, mechanisms by which the empire functions globally. So I think that we should always look at the CIA and the FBI and the NSA and all of, these, all of these people, they're villains, right? These are villainous institutions that should be dismantled that we oppose. That being said, it doesn't mean that everything they say is a lie. Right. And especially when it comes to uh, putting out information about their adversaries, that's where we have to be very discerning. Right. Sometimes it will be disinformation and sometimes it won't be. In this case, it wasn't. In this case, they clearly had the intelligence. they clearly had uh, sources inside of Russia's government, military, etc. whoever was accessing this and providing the intelligence to the. US. it was obviously dead on. The US obviously shared that intelligence with Europeans. Maybe it was U.S intelligence, maybe it was Ukrainian intelligence that passed it to the. US. not entirely clear. Uh, going back to Iraq, and, and sort of the formative experience that that was weapons of mass destruction and fundamental distrust of us intelligence is the most understandable thing in the world. Why would anybody believe these assholes after they've lied us into so many wars, right? At the same time, you should also ask yourself, why would you believe Russian intelligence? Why would you think that they're going to be somehow more honest Right. And sometimes they will be just like the U.S. will sometimes will be right. The point of a, as, as a leftist is not to say, well, I believe this one and I don't believe this one. The point is to evaluate the evidence that exists in front of you. Right. Three weeks ago, I was writing I was doing audio commentaries about why Russia's not invading. Hardware wasn't there. There was no evidence. There was just talk. And I'm not interested in U.S. intelligence talk and then media war drum, you know, the the war drums in the media. And that's supposed to then sort of frame the analysis. No, I I saw satellite photos. I looked at other things that I that I was looking at in research and I saw that they didn't have their attack helicopters there. They didn't have the hardware there. It wasn't there. Right. And so I'm like, well, there's no invasion. Well, here we are. Three weeks later, they moved all that shit into place. Everything was there. And here we are. And it is an invasion. So U.S. intelligence was right. Russians were putting out disinformation. And anybody who can't admit that is a liar that shouldn't be trusted.
1: Do you think in some ways maybe a lot of us on the left have this issue where I I think sometimes we have knee-jerk reactions? So if you and me are criticizing Putin, I, I think there are people that will just jump up and down and start screaming, what are you, Michael McFaul now? It's like no, I, I don't like McFall either. I don't trust him any more. So, uh, but you know, things are not as simple as they may have been twenty five years ago.
0: They're fools. What can I tell you? They're fools. They 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 buy into the information that they prefer, and they ignore the information that they don't like. And that is not. It's not analysis. It's certainly not Marxist politics. Um, You know, I can't really speak to what exactly that is other than they are uh, they have bought completely into uh, Russia's propaganda machine. And it's a vast one. And I know because I used to be in there. I used to be on RT every week. I used to be on Sputnik. I used to be on uh, Peter Lavelle's crosstalk debate program. I used to do all of that shit. I know pretty well how that system operates and what they're peddling And what they've been peddling has been disinformation for quite a long time. And even when it is good information and correct analysis, usually about things that the United States does around the world, it's still not something that can be relied upon, because again, this is imperialist propaganda. It's just from Russian imperialists.
1: Do you think uh, before we wrap up here, do you think that the protests that are emerging now in Russia and I'm also seeing reports, and I, I don't want to push them too hard because I don't know if they're completely confirmed. But there's reports that some of the battalions are saying, you know, we're not going to do this and are sort of resisting orders. Do, do you think there's a, any hope that, you know, things could go in a different direction, just due to the the public in Russia?
0: No, um, I that was I, emphatic. I no i don't think that putin is going to change what he's what what his plans are it's the, the open question is exactly what the plan is right that that is what we don't know i don't think he's going to change his plans because people are upset in russia or elsewhere he's certainly not going to change his plans because europeans are protesting right uh domestic protest well We've seen the attempts that the Russians have made on a number of occasions to control street protests. It's not entirely clear to me exactly how much or how little they can control. Um, It remains to be seen. I'm not even going to I'm not even going to venture a guess because the protests uh, last year were, were, were very widespread and very large. But now there are other domestic social pressures. You know, I think that uh, the Russians undoubtedly have been prepared for what the domestic outcry might be. And specifically, uh, I would imagine that that Putin would be using his far right forces to keep some of these domestic protests in line. Uh, Russia is the most Nazified country in the world in terms of in terms of total numbers, in terms of Nazi biker gangs, in terms of the various Nazi elements. It's funny how much they peddle the Nazi Ukraine story, because while there are absolutely Nazis in Ukraine and they are very organized and some of them do have some connections to state power, uh, Russia is actually way more fascist and way more Nazi in terms of actual neo-Nazis. Um, but that's, again, beside the point at, at this point. I think that uh, you will see some domestic protest. You will see uh, people saying rightly that they don't want to send their their sons to go die in Ukraine,
1: to go conquer Ukraine. Right. Um, well, these are two countries that are historically connected in a lot of ways. I, I don't know why they would want to you know, fight. Uh, well, yes,
0: they, they are and they aren't. Right. right it right. depends on it depends on how you look at it. And it depends on from what perspective. Right. If you're a Russian, if you're a Russian imperial revanchist like Alexander Dugan. Right. Or people like that who have that kind of influential view uh, for for people like that, Ukraine doesn't exist. Right. For people like that, Ukraine is a concoction of Vladimir Lenin. And it was foisted on the Russian people by these dastardly Jew Jewish Bolsheviks in the you know following 1917, right? And that what Putin is doing is not is not is not simply re, you know uh, uh, conquering Ukraine. He is re you know establishing what is Russia. Right, that is the perspective of the Russian imperialist, um, and um, it's of course garbage. It's it's rooted in a fundamental lack of understanding of, ninth, of of the period around the Russian Revolution. Basically, to put it in a nutshell, uh, Vladimir Lenin came to the realization that part of the revolution was the dismantling of Russian imperialism, and the and what he meant partially by that was what would what we would now come to call uh, uh, the right of the right of the peoples to self-determination, right? That is what Lenin fundamentally uh, 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 understood and why they when if you watch Putin's speech the other day, I, I mean, was going to he, say he, he yeah, did a broadside against Lenin. He overtly attacked Lenin and not only did he attack Lenin, he attacked even the very basis of the anti-imperialist impulse of the revolution, right? The idea of Lenin, uh, uh, the idea that Lenin had, the sort of breakthrough that he had, and this was very, very controversial at the time among Marxists, was that although we are internationalists and we do not side with petty nationalisms, at the same time, we do not deprive the people who had been subjugated by Russian imperialism and the czar, their right to determine their own future. And that is how Ukraine, as we understand it, came to be. It came to be because the Bolsheviks gave the right of self-determination. I shouldn't say gave. That's probably a bit uh, not, the, not the best word to use, but that the, that the Bolsheviks established this policy. Right, And that, of course, later changes under Stalin, for all reasons I don't have time to go into. But the, the bottom line is Ukraine is Russian and it isn't. Right. The Western portion of Ukraine, again, there's a whole history that people need to understand. But there were empires that existed that don't exist anymore that are part of this. Right. The Polish Lithuanian empires collapse in the 18th century. And the partitioning of all of those lands is what created Poland. It's what created Lithuania. It's what created Hungary. Uh, Well, Hungary is a different story, but it's what created some of these countries. And Western Ukraine is more Polish than it is Russian. It's closer to those countries to the West. It it faces it's it's Catholic. They don't speak Russian. They are different people. And yet, historically, this is what's come to pass. Right. So when you hear the history lesson from Russian imperialists, all that they're really telling you is there is no Ukraine. That's what they're really saying. So they can justify what is an obvious war crime against Ukraine by simply saying there is no Ukraine. In the same way that in the same way that Zionists justify everything they do against Palestinians by saying there are no Palestinians. They're just there are Jordanians, there's Saudis, there's 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 Bedouin uh uh nomads,
1: there's no Palestinians. Yeah, what's what's I think the line that Kahana uses there are no Palestinians, there are only Arabs, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Right. And so and and I mean obviously it's
0: apples to oranges. I'm not saying the same that these are the same situation, but similarly, the denial of their very existence is almost a prerequisite for truly
1: uh, revanchist Russian imperialist politics. I I don't know that there's really much else we can say about this situation. I think a lot of people are feeling like they've made mistakes in their analysis. I know that I felt that way. You you have felt that way uh, in the past, especially. Uh, What do you want to say just in closing about all of this You want to be an anti-imperialist, oppose imperialism.
0: This is Russian imperialism. You want to deny that that exists? That's fine. But then don't expect me to take anything you say seriously. My closing remark is that I, I don't know how this goes. Right. I don't think anybody does. Right. War can be very unpredictable. All kinds of things can happen. What if somebody does something against Russian uh, military forces that was unexpected? What if it's not even Ukrainians that do it? Who knows how, how far this could go? Right. So there, so war unleashes a tremendous amount of unpredictable uh, unpredictability, many factors coming into play. I think that for the left, the most important thing is to just be clear eyed about what it is that we are and what it is that we believe in. And if you and if you believe that you're an anti-imperialist, you have to oppose imperialism and you can't just reside. You can't just rest uh, everything you have on the fact that there's only one imperialist, that there's only one imperialist power. I think Putin himself has demonstrated in the last 24 hours that that's simply not the case anymore.
3: (laughs) with Bushwick, Bill? Hello, this is Bushwick. Motherfucking Bill. Yes, sir. I'm calling to inform you that you've been uh, drafted into the United States military. The United States wants me for what? <laughs> Excuse me, sir. Bushwick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, right, what's up? You need to uh, contact your nearest recruiting office immediately, please. I see you're not hip to What's happening? I don't give a fuck about you and all that bullshit you're stressing. Fuck a war. So explain, let me kick it to you a little something like this. Motherfucker war, That's how I feel. Sending a nigga to the delet-